Chapter Thirteen of Seven Keys to Baldpate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seven Keys to Baldpate by Earl Dare Biggers. Chapter Thirteen: The Exquisite Mister Hayden. It was past three o'clock. The early twilight crept up the mountain, and the shadows began to lengthen in the great bare office of Baldpate Inn. In the red flicker of firelight Mr. McGee sat and pondered. The interval since luncheon had passed lazily. He was no nearer to guessing which of Baldpate Inn's winter guests hugged close the precious package. Exasperated, angry, he waited for he knew not what, restless all the while to act but having not the glimmer of an inspiration as to what his course ought to be he heard the rustle of skirts on the stair landing and looked up down the broad stairway so well designed to serve as a shadow window for the sartorial triumphs of baldpate's gay summer people came the tall handsome girl who had the night before set all his plans awry in the swift-moving atmosphere of the inn she had hitherto been to Mr. McGee but a puppet of the shadows, a figure more fictitious than real. Now, for the first time, he looked upon her as a flesh-and-blood girl, noted the red in her olive cheeks, the fire in her dark eyes, and realized that her interest in that package of money might be something more than another queer quirk in the tangle of events." she smiled a friendly smile at mcgee and took the chair he offered one small slipper beat a discreet tattoo on the polished floor of baldpate's office again she suggested to billy mcgee a house of wealth and warmth and luxury a house where arnold bennett and the post-impressionists were often discussed a house the head of which becomes purple and apoplectic at the mention of colonel roosevelt's name last night mr mcgee she said I told you frankly why I had come to Baldpate Inn. You were good enough to say that you would help me if you could. The time has come when you can, I think. Yes, answered McGee. His heart sank. What now? I must confess that I spied this morning, she went on. It was rude of me, perhaps, but I think almost anything is excusable under the circumstances, don't you? I witnessed a scene in the hall above. Mr. McGee, I know who has the two hundred thousand dollars. You know? cried McGee. His heart gave a great bound. At last! And then he stopped. I'm afraid I must ask you not to tell me, he added sadly. The girl looked at him in wonder. She was of a type common in McGee's world, delicate, finely reared, sensitive. True, in her pride and haughtiness she suggested the snow-capped heights of the eternal hills, but at sight of those feminine heights Billy McGee had always been one to seize his alpenstock in a more determined grip, and climb. Witness his attentions to the superb Helen Faulkner. He had a moment of faltering. Here was a girl who at least did not doubt him, who ascribed to him the virtues of a gentleman, who was glad to trust in him. Should he transfer his allegiance? No, he could hardly do that now. "'You ask me not to tell you,' repeated the girl slowly. "'That demands an explanation,' replied Billy McGee. "'I want you to understand, to be certain, that I would delight to help you if I could. But the fact is that before you came I gave my word to secure the package you speak of for—another woman. 
I cannot break my promise to her. I see, she answered. Her tone was cool. I'm very sorry, McGee went on, but as a matter of fact I seem to be of very little service to anyone. Just now I would give a great deal to have the information you are about to give me. But since I could not use it helping you, you will readily see that I must not listen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too, replied the girl. Thank you very much for telling me. Now I must go forward alone. She smiled unhappily. I'm afraid you must, answered Billy McGee. On the stairs appeared the slim figure of the other girl. Her great eyes were wistful, her face was pale. She came toward them through the red firelight. Mr. McGee saw what a fool he had been to waver in his allegiance even for a moment. For he loved her, wanted her, surely. The snow-capped heights were inspiring, but far more companionable is the brook that sparkles in the valley. "'It's rather dull, isn't it?' asked Miss Norton of the Thornhill girl. By the side of the taller woman she seemed slight, almost childish. "'Have you seen the pictures of the Admiral, Miss Thornhill?' looking at them as our one diversion. "'I do not care to see them, thank you,' Myra Thornhill replied, moving toward the stairs. "'He is a very dear friend of my father.' She passed up and out of sight. Miss Norton turned away from the fire, and Mr. McGee rose hastily to follow. He stood close behind her, gazing down at her golden hair shimmering in the dark. "'I've been thinking,' he said lightly, what an absolutely ridiculous figure I must be in your eyes, buzzing around and round like a bee in a bottle, and getting nowhere at all. Listen, no one has left the inn. While they stay, there's hope. Am I not to have one more chance, a chance to prove to you how much I care? She turned, and even in the dusk he saw that her eyes were wet. Oh, I don't know, I don't know, she whispered. I'm not angry any more. I'm just at sea. I don't know what to think, what to do. Why try any longer? I think I'll go away and give up. You mustn't do that, urged McGee. They came back into the firelight. Miss Thornhill has just informed me that she knows who has the package. Indeed, said the girl calmly, but her face had flushed. I didn't let her tell me, of course. Why not? Oh, how maddening women could be! Why not? McGee's tone was hurt. Because I couldn't use her information in getting the money for you. Are you still going to get the money for me? Maddening, certainly, as a rough-edged collar. Of... McGee began, but caught himself. No, he would prate no more of going to. I'll not ask you to believe it, he said, until I bring it to you and place it in your hand. She turned her face slowly to his and lifted her blue eyes. I wonder, she said, I wonder. The firelight fell on her lips, her hair, her eyes, and Mr. McGee knew that his selfish bachelorhood was at an end. Hitherto marriage had been to him the picture drawn by the pathetic exiled master. There are no more pleasant bypaths down which you may wander, but the road lies long and straight and dusty to the grave. What if it were so? With the hand of a girl like this in his, 
what if the pleasant by-paths of his solitude did bear hereafter the no thoroughfare sign long the road might be and he would rejoice in its length dusty perhaps but her smile through the dust would make it all worth while he stooped to her give me please he said the benefit of the doubt it was a poor speech compared to what was in his heart but billy mcgee was rapidly learning that most of the pretty speeches went with puppets who could not feel bland and max came in from a brisk walk on the veranda the mayor of Rutten, who had been dozing near the desk stirred great air up here remarked mr max rubbing his hands before the fire ought to be pumped down into the region of the white lights it sure would stir things up it would put out the lights at ten p m answered mr mcgee and inculcate other wholesome habits of living disastrous to the restaurant impresarios miss norton rose and ascended the stairs still the protesting mcgee was at her heels at the head of the stair she turned you shall have your final chance she said the mayor max and bland are alone in the office i don't approve of eavesdropping at baldpate in the summer it has spoiled a lot of perfectly adorable engagements but in winter it's different whether you really want to help me or not i'm sure i don't know but if you do the conversation below now might prove of interest i'm sure it would mcgee replied well i have a scheme listen baldpate inn is located in a temperance county that doesn't mean that people don't drink here it simply means that there's a lot of mystery and romance connected with the drinking. Sometimes those who follow the god of chance in the card-room late at night grow thirsty. Now it happens that there is a trap-door in the floor of the card-room, up which drinks are frequently passed from the cellar. Isn't that exciting? A hotel clerk who became human once in my presence told me all about it if you went into the cellar and hunted about you might find that door and climb up into the card-room a bully idea agreed mr mcgee i'll hurry down there this minute i'm more grateful than you can guess for this chance and this time but you'll see he found the back stairs and descended in the kitchen the hermit got in his path mr mcgee he pleaded i consider that in a way i work for you here i've got something important to tell you just a minute sorry answered mcgee but i can't possibly stop now in an hour i'll talk to you show me the cellar door and don't mention where i've gone there's a good fellow mr peters protested that his need of talk was urgent but to no avail mcgee hurried to the cellar and with the aid of a box of matches found a ladder leading to a door cut in the floor above he climbed through dust and cobwebs unfastened the catch and pushed cautiously upward in another minute he was standing in the chill little card-room softly he opened the card-room door about a half an inch and put his ear to it the three men were grouped very close at hand and he heard mr bland speaking in low tones i'm talking to you boys as a friend the show is over there ain't no use hanging round for the concert there won't be none go home and get some clean collars and a square meal if you think i'm going to be shook off by any fairy story like that said the governor of Rutin, you're a child with all a child's touching faith all right replied mr bland 
I thought I'd pass you the tip, that's all. It ain't nothing to me what you do. But it's all over, and you've lost out. I'm sorry you have, but I take Hayden's orders. Damn Hayden, snarled the mayor. It was his idea to make a three-act play out of this thing. He's responsible for this silly trip to Baldpate. This audience we've been acting for, he let us in for them. I know, said Bland, but you can't deny that Baldpate Inn looked like the ideal spot at first. Secluded, off the beaten path, you know, and all that. Yes, sneered the mayor, as secluded as a Sunday school the Sunday before Christmas. Well, who could have guessed it? went on Mr. Bland. As I say, I don't care what you do. I just passed you the tip. I've got that nice little package of the long green. I've got it where you'll never find it. Yes, sir, it's returned to the loving hands of little Joe Bland that brought it here first. It ain't going to Rome no more. So what's the use of your sticking around? How did you get hold of it? inquired Mr. Lou Max. I had my eye on this little professor person, explained Mr. Bland. This morning, when McGee went up the mountain, I trailed the highbrow to McGee's room. When I busted in, unannounced by the butler, he was making his getaway. I don't like to talk about what followed. He's an old man, and I sure didn't mean to break his glasses, nor scratch his dome of thought. There's ideas in that dome go back to the time of Anthony J. Chaucer. But he's always talking about that literature chair of his. Why couldn't he stay at home and sit in it? Anyhow, I got the bundle all right, all right. I wonder what the little fossil wants with it. The doc's glasses was broke, said Max, evidently to the mayor of Rutin. Mm, came Cargan's voice. Bland, how much do you make working for this nice kind gentleman, Mr. Hayden? Oh, about two thousand a year with pickings, replied Bland. Yes, went on Mr. Cargan. I ain't no Charles Dana Gibson with words. My talk's a little rough and sketchy, I guess, but here's the outline, plain as I can make it. Two thousand a year from Hayden, twenty thousand in two seconds, if you hand that package to me. No, objected Bland. I've been honest, after a fashion. I can't quite stand for that. I'm working for Hayden. Don't be a fool, sneered Max. Of course, said the mayor, I appreciate your scruples, having had a few in my day myself, though you'd never think so to read the star. But look at it sensible. The money belongs to me. If you was to hand it over, you'd be just doing plain justice. What right has Hayden on his side? I did what was agreed. Do I get my pay? No. Who are you to defeat the ends of justice this way? That's how you ought to look at it. You give me what's my due, and you put twenty thousand in your pocket by an honest act. Hayden comes, he asks for the bundle, you point to the dynamited safe, you did your best. No, said Bland, but his tone was less firm. I can't go back on Hayden. No, it wouldn't. Twenty thousand, repeated Cargan. Ten years' salary the way you're going ahead at present. A lot of money for a young man. If I was you, I wouldn't hesitate a minute. Think. What's Hayden ever done for you? He'll throw you down some day, the way he's thrown me. I... I... don't know, wavered Bland. Mr. McGee in the card-room knew that Hayden's emissary was tottering on the brink. You could set up in business, 
whined Mr. Max. Why, if I'd had that much money at your age, I'd be a millionaire today. You get the package, suggested the mayor. Take twenty thousand out and slip the rest to me. No questions asked. I guess there ain't nobody mixed up in this affair will go up on the housetops and shout about it when we get back to Rutan. Well, began Bland. He was lost. Suddenly the quiet of Baldpate Mountain was assailed by a loud pounding at the inn door, and a voice crying, Bland, let me in. There's Hayden now, cried Mr. Bland. It ain't too late, came the mayor's voice. You can do it yet. It ain't too late. Do what? cried Bland in a firm tone. You can't bribe me, Cargan. He raised his voice. Go round to the east door, Mr. Hayden. And then he added to Cargan, That's my answer. I'm going to let him in. Let him in, bellowed the mayor. Let the hound in. I guess I've got something to say to Mr. Hayden. There came to McGee's ears the sound of opening doors and of returning footsteps. "'How do you do, Cargan?' said a voice new to Baldpate. "'Cut the society howdy-doos,' replied the mayor hotly. "'There's a little score to be settled between me and you, Hayden. I ain't quite wise to your orchid-in-the-buttonhole ways. I don't quite follow them. I ain't been bred in the club you hang around. They blackballed me when I tried to get in. You know that.' I'm a rough, rude man. I don't understand your system. When I give my word, I keep it. Has that gown out of style up on the avenue where you live? There are conditions, began Hayden. The hell there are, roared Cargan. A man's word's his word, and he keeps it to me, or I know the reason why. You can't come down to the city hall with any new deal like this. I was to have two hundred thousand. Why didn't I get it? "'Because,' replied Hayden, smoothly, "'the, er, little favor you were to grant me in return "'is to be made useless by the courts.' "'Can I help that?' the mayor demanded. "'Was there anything about that in the agreement? "'I did my work. I want my pay. "'I'll have it, Mr. Hayden.' "'Hayden's voice was cool and even as he spoke to Bland. "'Got the money, Joe?' "'Yes,' Bland answered.' where well we'd better wait hadn't we bland's voice was shaky no we'll take it and get out answered hayden i want to see you do it cried cargan if you think i've come up here on a pleasure trip i've got a chart and a pointer all ready for your next lesson and let me put you wise this knobby little idea of yours about bald paid in is the worst ever this place is as full of people as if the regular summer rates was being charged. The devil it is, cried Hayden. His voice betrayed a startled annoyance. It hasn't worried me none, went on the mayor. They can't touch me. I own the prosecutor, and you know it. But it ain't going to do you any good on the avenue if you're seen here with me, is it, Mr. Hayden? The more reason, replied Hayden, for getting the money and leaving at once. I'm not afraid of you, Cargan. I'm armed. I ain't, sneered the mayor. But no exquisite from your set with his little air-gun ever scared me. You try to get away from here with that bundle, and you'll find yourself all tangled up in the worst scrap that ever happened. Where's the money, Joe? asked Hayden. You won't wait, Bland begged. 
Wait to get my own money, I guess not. Show me where it is. Remember, put in Cargan, that money's mine, and I don't have any pipe dreams about the law. The law ain't called into things of this sort as a rule. I guess you'd be the last to call it. You'll never get away from here with my money. Mr. McGee opened the card-room door farther, and saw the figure of the stranger Hayden confronting the mayor. Mr. Cargan's title of exquisite best described him. The newcomer was tall, fair, fastidious in dress and manner. A revolver gleamed in his hand. "'Joe,' he said firmly, "'take me to that money at once.' "'It's out here,' replied Bland. He and Hayden disappeared through the dining-room door into the darkness." Cargan and Max followed close behind. Hot with excitement, Mr. McGee slipped from his place of concealment. A battle fit for the gods was in the air. He must be in the midst of it. Perhaps again in a three-cornered fight, it would be the third party that would emerge victorious. In the darkness of the dining-room, he bumped into a limp, clinging figure. It proved to be the hermit of Baldpate Mountain. "'I got to talk to you, Mr. McGee.' he whispered in a frightened tremolo. "'I got to have a word with you this minute.' "'Not now,' cried McGee, pushing him aside. "'Later!' The hermit wildly seized his arm. "'No, now. There's strange goings-on here, Mr. McGee. I got something to tell you about a package of money I found in the kitchen.' Mr. McGee stood very still. Beside him in the darkness he heard the hermit's excited breathing." End of chapter 13